Hey guys, this is Everything Missing or Murdered Podcast. My name is Andrea. I hope everyone's having a great day today. I have tried several days to record this. I apologize. It's not the technology. It's me. I'm having some major health issues that I'm trying to get worked on. Um, so I apologize for this being late. It's going to be two episodes because um, it's a long case. There's a lot of stuff uh, that's going on in this case that I have to make it to. I'm probably not going to give you guys as much like any new information. Um, so if you've heard this case before and you don't want to hear it anymore, that's fine. Um, I like to talk about it because it needs to be solved. And um, now this is a pretty controversial topic. So many people talk about it and have different views on who did it or why it's not solved, that kind of thing. Um, and apparently some group claims to know who the Zodiac killer is. Um, but as of last year, I saw the FBI say that the case is not solved yet. So I will continue to talk about cases like this until they are solved. Um, not necessarily, I only want to know who for the victim's families. Um, and I want the victims to get justice. They deserve justice. So it I, even if you can't arrest whoever it was, at least they know who it is. And I mean, I think that's better than, than not knowing anything. So yeah. Um, but yeah, here we go. On December 20th, 1968, in Benicia, California. Um, Benicia is a small town. The, the temperature that night was really cold. 17-year-old David Faraday was a senior at Vallejo High School. He had great plans for his future and hoped to become a teacher. 16-year-old Betty Jensen... Um, was a junior at Benicia's Hogan High School. She was an artist. Um, she was working on an art scholarship to get into a really good school. Betty and David were going on a date that, that night. Both Betty and David met at a church function. They were dating for a short time. Tonight was supposed to make them really official. He told friends that he was going to ask Betty if she would go study with him which is a really big deal. And he was going to give her a class ring of his, which is also a really big deal. Betty was having issues finding the right outfit. I remember those days. Now that I've been married for five years uh, and being with him for six, it, it's um, like I get... I don't have that feeling anymore where I, you know, I'm worried about what I'm going to wear, but I remember the days where you would do that. She asked her sister for some help and she tried on all kinds of things. She ended up picking a purple dress. It was her first date with David and her real first date in general. David picked up Betty. He told her parents he would take her to a Christmas concert at Hogan High School. Betty had to be home by 11 p.m. that night. He was driving a 1961 Rambler station wagon that his mother owned and was only allowed to use when she wasn't working or needed the car for anything, which seems pretty reasonable. They went to visit a friend for a bit and then went out to eat at a diner named Mr. Ed's. So... I remember, so remember that they were going to a high school to watch a Christmas concert. They ended up changing their mind. 
no idea which one of them was like, hey, let's do something different. Um, David Faraday and Betty Jensen went down to Lake Herman Road, a long road that connects the town of Benencia to Vallejo. It's a quiet area with a lot of fields and trees. At around 10.15 that night, David parked his mom's rambler on a gravel turnout by the lake, by Lake Herman. It's a secluded area, and it's known for a lover's lane. They were there until 11. A married couple drove by and saw the car parked in the turnout. Betty and David were just sitting close to each other in the front seat. I mean, they didn't know their names, but they saw a girl and a boy sitting close to each other in the car. The wife of the married couple stated that they were driving west on Lake Herman Road at a turn off to the Benencia Water Pumping Station. She saw a Rambler station wagon parked with a front end heading east. There were two people in the front seat, a male and a female. When the lights came from the car on the station wagon, so like their car lights were hitting the station wagon, the male sat up in the seat right away. She said it was cold and saw that there was no frost on the car. The girl was resting her head against his shoulder. When the last of the car flashed on the Rambler, the male put his hands on the wheel. The couple saw a red truck parked along Lake Herman Road. The red truck drove by two hunters who were heading back from a brush. They were both um, they were both carrying rifles and were seen by the married couple driving. Also, the red truck was a Ford. At around 11.10, the hunters got back to their truck and they leave. On the way out, they saw the Rambler parked in the gravel turnout off the road and did not see any other cars or anyone really. A little after a a little later, a man named James Owen was going to work as at at an overnight shift. Um, well, that's, he works as an overnight shift supervisor at an oil refinery in Benencia. Benencia, sorry. James said he saw a station wagon parked in the gravel turnout and another vehicle parked next to it. The first vehicle was a 1955 or a 1956 station wagon, but did not get a good look at the second one. The car did not have any chrome on it, and it was parked very close. James said he only remembers because there was two cars in the turnout when usually you don't see more than one. And I would probably notice that too if I drive by it a lot for sure. He was questioned a few days later and said he actually heard a gunshot behind him after passing the gravel turnout. Odd that he would remember that detail later, but it, it, it does happen. At around 11.20, Stella Borges was going down Lake Herman Road from her Borges ranch. She had her mom in the car, and they were going to go pick up her son. Stella approaches the gravel turnout. No cars were going in either direction on the road. Her headlights hit on a car, and she saw a boy, and he had looks like he had fallen out of the car. The girl was lying on her side facing the road. She had a purple dress on. She saw only one car. It looked like a Rambler, a gray color. It had a chrome it had chrome racks on the top. Sheila, excuse me, Stella drove to Benicia to report what she saw. There were two officers Stella flagged down, Captain Daniel Pitta and Officer William Warner. They were at a gas station a couple miles away. They followed her to the gravel turnout. 
On that very cold December 20th, 1968 night, Captain Daniel Pitta and Officer William Warner followed Stella Borges back to the turnout and it took a few minutes to get there. So when Stella saw the car, it was 1120 and maybe five minute drive. Um, they both called for backup. Officer Pierre Bedeau and of the Benicia Police Department was one of the first to arrive after the call. That night, he had given a search warrant at a cottage at Lake Herman. It was owned by the city of Benicia. It was a narcotics search warrant. They confiscate, confiscated marijuana, which was a which was pretty big back then. They went back to the police department and they drove to the gravel turnout and claimed they didn't see anything. But when they got to the police department, they got the call of a possible shooting at Lake Herman Road. They said they never saw anyone on the road, so who knows when the shooting even took place. The police found David Faraday laying just outside the light brown 1961 Rambler station wagon. He had been shot once behind his ear at maybe close range because there was gunpowder of gunpowder burn on his ear. They felt a pulse on David and waited for paramedics. He was rushed to a hospital. David was holding his class ring. Betty Jensen was found several feet away from the car face down. Stella Borges, when she drove by, saw that this girl was laying on her side, so she must have moved. Betty was not alive, though. She was shot five times, all in the back. Three bullets to her upper back and two hit her lower back. After an autopsy was performed, the bullets had gone through her heart, liver, and right kidney, and her lungs were hit by three separate gunshots. There was a trail of blood from the car to where she eventually died, and I'm thinking she tried to crawl away, so that's pretty... I can't imagine. A Salona County Sheriff's Detective Sergeant Leslie Lundblad came around midnight. He told an officer to go to the hospital to get a statement from David, but he was dead on arrival. The police searched the area and found Betty Jensen's purse by the vehicle, and it had not been touched. Robbery was not the motive, clearly. They just, the police just thought, okay, maybe this shooting was just random, I guess, for whatever reason. A lot of witnesses came forward about what happened. The married couple was one of them. They drove down Lake Herman Road a couple of times that night. The husband wanted to check on some work he had been doing at the water pumping station. They talked to Colbert Connolly and Frank Gasser, the hunters who left the area before the Lake Herman murders. They said they saw the Rambler station wagon parked there when they left, but also said that they had seen a white Chevy car parked there when they came earlier that night around nine-ish. They talked to a man named William Crow, who was out driving with his girlfriend in her sports car. He told the police that he had seen a white Chevy around the gravel turnout around 9.30. That same white Chevy was seen by a local farmer as well. He was checking on his sheep around 10 that night, and he saw the Chevy parked by the south fence of the entrance to the pumping station. They talked to James Owen. He told the police about the other car, but like I said, couldn't give a ton of detail. This, after a few days, is when he changed what he said. Remember what about the gunshot he heard. He also originally said the second car was really close to the station wagon, but in in, in but they actually might have been up to 10 feet away, which I don't really consider super close. I mean, it's not too far either, but still quite a few feet. 
The police asked the hunters, Robert and Frank, as well as James, to bring in their guns to look at them. The test came back negative. They found nine shells at Lake Herman Road. All the bullets were of the same manufacturer and brand. They were Winchester Western Super X Copper-coated 22 caliber long rifle bullets. Three shots fired had missed going through the car. One hit in an angle that ripped through the roof. Maybe they were farther away. Maybe they were just warning shots. The police think whoever killed David Faraday and Betty Jensen had some professional training, either military, a police officer, or did a lot of hunting. I mean, it could be anything. Just somebody that really knows their guns. The police originally looked at someone that seemed interested in Betty Jensen. This man had a history of petty crime like burglary and vandalism. This man also didn't get along with David. He was eliminated as a suspect because he had an alibi and it was verified by other police officers who had been with him that night. This could have been drug drug related. Uh, David had an issue with a local drug dealer. He was involved in the drug bust from earlier that night. Um, not David, but the but the drug dealer that he had an issue with was involved in the drug dealer the drug deal that night. Excuse me which I think is an interesting thing to note. This led police nowhere, though. David's mom said that he was friendly and easy to be around. They're like he never had any issues. One officer, Pierre Bedeau, does not think this was a random killing. Well, who just drives by and says, you know what, today I'm going to commit an evil crime like this. I, I don't know how anyone can think like that. Um, Bedeau thinks that this was planned out. The case was running out of leads now. Winter months and spring months have passed, and now we are in the summer months. On July 4th, kids were playing with their friends, and barbecues were starting. Darlene Farron wanted this day off from Terry's Restaurant or Waffle Shop, which was a 24-hour diner that she worked at. She spent a lot of the day with her family and friends and taking care of her daughter, who was a year and a half old. Darlene didn't spend any time with her husband. He worked at a different restaurant in Vallejo. His name is Dean Farron. It seems their marriage was fine, but Darlene had some secrets. 22-year-old Darlene Farron had been hanging out with people that her friends and family didn't know. She would go on trips with them. Darlene was married once before as well. Michael McGow was quiet and three years younger than... Darlene Farron. He was 19. Michael lived at home and he worked as a day laborer. Michael had a twin brother named Steve who seemed interested in Darlene. Michael liked her too and spent a lot of time with her. He was also friends with Dean as well, so that had to have been pretty awkward. He wore a lot of layers in the summer months. Um, I guess he did it because he was skinny and wanted to look bigger. On the night of July 4th, 1969, Darlene Farron called Mike McGow and asked to hang out. Her and her friends were going to have a late night at her house. She was going to get supplies um, and some fireworks if there was any. At around 11.40, Darlene got to Mike's house in her 1963 Chevy Corvair and they leave. She didn't eat and neither did Mike, so they went to drive to uh, Mr. Ed's. The diner. Does that sound pretty familiar? David and Betty went to the same place. The place was busy, so they changed their minds. She, um, she wanted to go somewhere quiet so they could have a conversation. 
At around midnight, they pulled into a lot at Blue Rock Springs Park. No one was there. They talked for a bit and got close and fireworks were in the sky. Some teenagers came into the lot to set off some fireworks, but then drove off again. Another, uh, there was some, a couple minutes go by and they still are talking. A car pulls up behind Darlene's Chevy Corvair. The car turned off the headlights for a bit and the car, and then the car drives off. They didn't know who that was. And Darlene says to just not worry about it. This car came back again. No other ones came in or out except for this one. It's a light brown car that looked similar to Darlene's car. They pulled in right behind Darlene and Mike again. The headlights showed um, they were pretty bright and they hit their rear view mirror and side mirrors. So maybe it's a cop. The, this person gets out with a flashlight. It's a high-powered flashlight on them and um, they get their IDs out thinking it could be a cop. Mike was going to talk to this person, but he was shot. Shots were fired into the Corvair. It was by a 9mm Luger pistol. Both were shot several times. Mike tried getting to the back seat. The person who did this awful crime shot two more times at both. And he climbs out the window. Um, the guy that did this ends up driving away before that. Three teens, um, two boys and a girl, got off the freeway and went to the Blue Rock Springs Park. They got there a little before midnight. They saw the brown Corvair. They saw Mike lying at well, lying on the ground asking for help. He told them to get the help. Um, they drove to one of their houses that was close and called the police. It was around 1210. Some people reported gunfire, but the police didn't really look into it at first because, hey, it's July 4th. An officer named Richard Hoffman passed Blue Rock Springs not too long before this happened and went back after he heard about the incident. It was probably just kids getting setting off fireworks, but even so, I'm really glad he went there to check. Richard saw the Chevy Covert Mike was laying on his back. He offered first aid. He was joined later by Detective Ed Rust. Darlene Farron was alive, but barely. They waited for paramedics. They took her to a hospital, but she died when they arrived at 1238. Michael, however, did survive. He had some mental and emotional damage, and, and rightfully so. On July 5th, 1969, the Vallejo Police Department got a call. 26-year-old Nancy Slover, who was a dispatcher for Vallejo, got the call around 12.40 a.m. It took a couple of seconds for the person to report something to her. They had a slow voice that was monotone. I want to report a murder. If you will go one mile east on Columbus Parkway, you will find kids in a brown car. They were shot with a 9mm Luger. I also killed those kids last year. Goodbye. So maybe this person was trying to disguise their voice because I, I mean, that's kind of what she thought because he sounded so off. There was no recording of this call. We only know about it because of her statement. They did trace the call to a phone booth at a gas station on Springs and Toleman uh, roads. So it's, it's not very far. The Vallejo Police Department were in charge of this case. Nine shots were fired at the scene. They found shell casings on the right side of the car on the ground. Two bullets were found on the back passenger floorboard. He must have leaned into the car to shoot those. Mike was shot four times. Darlene was shot five. The police list listed that, that this could be a jealousy slash revenge thing. Um, Detective Ed Rust, to be exact, said that. They looked at 
Dean Farron. Darlene was his wife, and she was out late at night with another man in a somewhat secluded park. So I can see why they would question Dean. Darlene and Dean got married in August of 1967 and had their daughter in January of 1968. Dean worked as a cook at a restaurant called Caesars, so that was his alibi, and a lot of people saw him. They then looked into James Crabtree, which was her ex-husband. They mar- they married, um, but it their marriage wasn't great, I guess. They were married in January of 1966 before they moved to Albany, New York. James worked as a writer for a paper, but it didn't last. They moved back to the West Coast, but moved in and out of Nevada, Pennsylvania, and the Virgin Islands. Darlene moved to Nevada in 1967 and filed for divorce in June, and he had an alibi. A local man named George Water had a weird obsession with Darlene. He would visit her at work even though he was married. And I'm sorry, it's George Waters, not Water. I don't know why I didn't see that part. I apologize. Um, Darlene turned him down a lot and tried to avoid him. I guess she was afraid of him. I would be too if someone hounded me all the time. George Waters had an alibi. They looked into Gordon Spence. Um, He was in the U.S. Navy and grew up in Fremont, California. He met Darlene Farron in 1968 when she worked at Terry's Restaurant. They had a romance for a bit. He was out of state until August of 1969 when he was told about what happened and the police wanted to talk to him. On September 1st, they talked to him and mentioned the affair with Darlene. I guess Darlene wrote Gordon a letter stating that she was going to leave Dean. She wanted to continue to be with Gordon and she was worried that their affair would make her pregnant. Um, He was out of state for military orders, so he was cleared. The police looked into phone calls in the same time frame. Before Darlene's death was reported in the media, her family said that they got some phone calls around 1. They just heard breathing on the other end. Friends told the police about another man who could possibly be involved. He was average looking and visited Darlene at work a lot. He would drop off packages at her home and was seen by Darlene's babysitter sitting outside of her house. He drove a white Chevy and would sit outside her house a lot. Does that sound familiar with the white Chevy? Problem with that is we don't know a definite on what kind of Chevy. This man, I guess, went by Lee. He went to Darlene's sister's painting party before the murder. He was overdressed and socially awkward. Mike talked with Detective Ed Rust on July 6th. He told them about the incident with the shooter at Blue Rock Springs Park. He talked about Darlene picking him up to when the gunshots were fired. He told them about the high-powered flashlight plus the blinding headlights. They were shot with um, from this man and not even – like he didn't even say anything. He just points a gun into the car and starts shooting them, which I think is insane and I can't imagine how terrifying that would have been. He said the gunshot sounded muffled like a silencer, but the other witnesses claimed to hear gunshots, so I, I don't know. Mike said the car was light brown and seemed similar to the Chevy Corvair. He described this man as being a white male between 26 and 30 years old. He stood around 5'8 and weighed about 200 pounds with short curly hair that was light colored. 
he had a round a round face that was kind of big he also said that he had a slow walking with his head down so he would have his head down kind of like it was lurching forward but it would be down and he was slow with walking Mike left Vallejo and lived on the streets. Um, he had a drug and alcohol issues as well. Uh, he didn't talk to police again until until 1991. Was the shootings at Lake Herman and Blue Rock Springs connected? It's a lover's lane sort of place. It was at night. They didn't know who they were shot by, but they were shot. These two crimes were not very far apart from each other. I looked on Google Maps. It's, it's a seven-minute drive, so it's odd that it's in the same area. Oh, and not to mention that they are young couples. So, well, not that Darlene and Mike were dating that I really know of. I mean, it sounds like they were, like, he was sweet on her and she might have been flirting with him. But I don't think that they were an actual couple. But this person that killed them obviously didn't really know that. Well, killed Darlene, not not Mike. I'm very glad somebody survived, but it's a really sad and horrible situation to be in. So it's something to, to wonder about. On July 31st, 1969, three letters were received by mail centers of newspapers, the Vallejo Times-Herald, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the San Francisco Examiner. Each letter was handwritten and written in a slanted format. They are different, but the signatures and basic info was the same. Each letter started with Dear Editor and took credit for the two shootings. This person referred to the Lake Herman Road murders around last Christmas with two S's um, and the girl who was shot near the Vallejo golf course on the 4th of July. That's how they, this person referred to that. They each contained information that only the police knew. Clearly, this must have been the killer, right? The ammunition, the clothing, the victims were wearing and the location of the gunshot wounds that person knew and described. There was a cipher in each one with odd numbers, letters, and characters. Each newspaper was given a third of the cipher. When figured out, it's supposed to have the person responsible. The person who wrote these letters wanted to wanted each cipher to be put on the front page, on the paper on August 1st, which was the next day. If not, they were going to go around all weekend killing people, then keep going with a lot of people that weekend, which is kind of, that's insane. At the bottom, they signed it, not by the name, but by a symbol, the cross-haired circle. The newspapers didn't know what to do, really. If they refused and handed over the letter and cipher to the police, then probably more people would die. But then this could get copycats. Probably could get copycats either way, though. The Vallejo Times-Herald published their cipher in the evening editions of their August 1st paper. The San Francisco Chronicle didn't put the cipher in on August 1st. They waited until August 2nd, but it didn't get first page. The Chronicle included quotes from the police chief, Jack Stiltz, in an article printed next to the cipher. He thinks it's a hoax. I don't know if it's a hoax. How did he know all the details? He wanted the writer to send more information. The San Francisco Examiner had a similar story on August 3rd and had the cipher, but published all three of the ciphers for people to try and decode. And something from the chief about coming forward with more information. On August 7th, 1969, the San Francisco Examiner got a response from an article from Sunday. It was postmarked for August 4th, and it was three pages where they identified themselves with a nickname. 
I guess, and added more details. Dear editor, this is the Zodiac speaking. In answer to you, to your asking for more details about the good times I had in Vallejo, good times. Yeah. I shall be very happy to supply even more material. By the way, are the police having a good time with the code? If not, tell them to cheer up. When they do crack it, they will have me. On the 4th of July, I did not open the car door. The window was rolled down already. The boy was originally sitting in the front seat when I began firing. When I fired the first shot at his head, he leapt backwards at the time, thus spoiling my aim. He ended up on the back seat, then the floor, and back thrashing out very violently with his legs. That's how I shot him in the knee. I did not leave the scene of the killing with the squealing tires plus racing engine as described in the Vallejo paper. I drove away quite slowly so as not to draw attention to my car. The man who told the police that my car was brown and was a, a black man about 40 to 45 years old, um, shabbily dressed. I was at this phone booth having some fun with the Vallejo cops when he was walking by. When I hung up, the damn thing began to ring and that drew his attention to me plus my car. Last Christmas with the two S's, in that episode, the police were wondering as to how I could shoot plus hit my victims in the dark. They did not openly slate this, but implied this by saying it was a well-lit night. Plus, I could see the silhouettes on the horizon. Bullshit that area surrounded by high hills plus trees. What I did was tape a small pencil flashlight in to the barrel of my gun. If you notice in the center of the beam of light, if you aim it at a wall or a ceiling, you will see a black or a dark spot in the center of the circle. Of light about three to six inches across, when taped to a gun barrel, the bullet will strike exactly in the center of the black dot in the light. All I had to do was spray them as if it was a water hose. There was no need to use the gun sights. I was not happy to see that I did not get front page coverage. Full of yourself there. It was signed with a crosshair symbol again, and there was no return address. So, of course, this letter was hard to read because this person used so many wrong punctuations and misspelled words. I wonder if that was intentional. The police looked for the uh, blackmail that the Zodiac mentioned as a shabbily dressed person. So the suspect's car was described by Mike, though. It, is he homeless? The phone call to the police was traced not very far away either. This person is um, enjoying themselves, though. They gave the cipher to the universities, FBI, military code breakers, naval intelligence. A married couple from Salinas, California, was obsessed with the cipher. Donald Hardin lived in Salinas and worked at North Salinas High School as a history and economics teacher. He loved puzzles and codes. I like puzzles too, but not this kind. Too much thinking. Too much thinking. And his wife, Betty Hardin, liked to break codes and puzzles as well. 
For, we, for a week, they spent a lot of time on this, substituting letters for the symbols and characters. Since the Zodiac was about themselves, they started the code with the letter I. They also thought this person would use kill more than once. The next weekend, David and Betty had a potential key for the cipher, and they had a translation, and they shared this to the newspapers. The cipher was 408 characters. And what they got out of it was, I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise and those I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow me, slow down or stop my collecting of slave for my afterlife. And then there was um, a bunch of letters, E-B-E-O-R-E-I-E-T-E-M-E-T-H-H-P-I-T-I. The cipher, the cipher with the letters have never been figured out. He misspelled in the cipher too. The words he misspelled were dangerous, animal experience, that, die, paradise, they, slow, stop, and collecting. Experts say he was an amateur trying to make a cipher or he's really smart and enjoyed making it difficult. I think it's that one. I don't think he's an amateur. On September 27, 1969, some young college students took a trip to Lake Berryessa. It is the largest lake in Napa County. The temperature was hot. Two students from Pacific Union College were going to an isolated island off the lake. 22-year-old Cecilia Shepard and 20-year-old Brian Hartnell were having a picnic in a quiet area along the lake. The island was connected by a sand pit to a twin oak ridge. You only get to it by one walking route. Brian was on his back. They heard a noise. Cecilia said it looked like a man who was several yards away from them, walking towards them. The island was isolated, but the lake wasn't private or anything, so they probably aren't the only people around. This man got closer, and Cecilia warned Brian of this, and he just didn't think much of it. He kept getting closer. He was walking really slow before going behind a tree, which would freak me out. Um, she thinks he was like looking at them a lot. Maybe he just needed to go to the bathroom. I don't think so. Around 6.30, this man kept going towards them. He was dressed in all black and he had a gun. He goes up to them and points a, the gun at them. He was wearing a dark outfit, like I said, a weird hood too with clip-on sunglasses over the eyes. He had a crosshair symbol on his chest. Does that sound familiar to anybody? This man said he was an escaped convict. Brian wanted more information. He said it had either been in Colorado or Monta Montana, and he mentioned Deer Lodge, Montana. This man said he killed a guard and stole a car. He needed their key car keys and the money that because he wanted to escape to Mexico. They gave him the keys and their wallets. Brian is a pre-law sociology major. He asked if this man needed any help or if he could write him a check for more money than what they had. This man wanted Cecilia to tie up Brian. He gave her a pre-cut lengths of 
plastic clothesline and ordered her to tie up Brian. She does. Then he goes over to them and ties Cecilia up and then double checks the restraints. The man seemed nervous because his hands were shaking. Brian asked if the gun was loaded and wanted to know if the robbery was for show. He shows them the clip. He also shows them the bullet. He takes out a knife and stabs Brian six times in the back. He stabs Cecilia five times in the back. She tries to get away, but she rolls onto her back and he stabs her there. She ended up being stabbed ten times, and he walks away. Brian and Cecilia are alive still. They get themselves free. They screamed out for help. A man fishing on Lake Berryessa with his son. Um, they heard the screams. Um, these people clearly needed some help. Ronald. Um, so the man's name is Ronald Fong. He and his son went for help at the Rancho Monticello Resort. They called park rangers to let them know about what's going on at Twi Twin Oak Ridge. A park ranger named Dennis Land was driving to the area when he saw a young man who was bleeding. It was Brian Hartnell, who freed himself as well as Cecilia Shepherd. There was another ranger who helped Brian into his truck and made a call at around 7 for police and paramedics. It would take a bit for more help to arrive, though. Sergeant David Collins and Deputy Ray Land of the Napa County Sheriff's Office responded. It took them half an hour to get to this location. This crime also happened about a half hour before they even knew about it. It is an isolated island, and they were stabbed several times, so that's really hard. Cecilia Shepard gave a description of the attacker. He was about 5'11", weighing between 175 and 200 pounds. He had brown hair. Paramedics had come almost an hour and a half when this all started. It took 10 minutes for the ambulance to get around and another 45 minutes to make it to the to Queen of the Valley Hospital and Napa. I get it, but, and it seems, I get it. It just sucks. When they arrived at the hospital, Cecilia Shepard went into a coma. She was in a coma for a couple of days. And on September 29th, she died of cerebral anoxia. Sergeant David Collins searched for evidence and found a footprint that led from Berryessa Knoxville Road to the victims and back again. The shoes were different from what they were wearing. He goes to the road and sees a white carmangia and tracks leading away from it. The car belonged to Brian Hartnell and the footprints from the man led straight to it. This person left something. On the passenger door, there was a circle with the vertical and horizontal line through it. A lot of dates too. It ends with September 27, 1969, 6.30 p.m. by knife. This was written in black felt pen. Vallejo, 12, 2068, September 27, 6.30 by a knife. This person was taking credit for the Vallejo shootings. It was written by the Zodiac. There was a press release for this crime, but they didn't release information about the knife. He was in, in well, this is just in case they decide to contact again, which is a smart move. So was this random or planned? I definitely don't think it was random because of the way that behavior before they saw tire tracks that were behind Brian's car as well. Around 7.40 that night, a call was received at the Napa County Sheriff's Office. An officer by the name of 
David Slate was on dispatch. This person said, I want to report a murder. No, a double murder. They are two miles north of park headquarters. They were in a white Volkswagen Carmangia. He said the man sounded young, maybe early 20s. He tried to ask where he was and he wouldn't answer. I'm the one who did it. He heard the phone get set down, but he did not hang up. They traced the call to the Napa car wash on Main Street. This, again, was not far from the Napa County Sheriff's Office, just like the phone booth at the gas station in Vallejo. A KVON radio reporter by the name of Pat Stanley found the phone off the hook. He was a news anchor, or excuse me, news director for KVON and heard a call saying if anyone in the area to be on the lookout for a suspicious man around a phone booth. He was by the Napa car wash and Sam... Sam Key Laundry building. He found the receiver off the hook and was told not to touch the phone or the booth. They lifted a palm print from the receiver. This palm print has yet to be identified. The police were able to talk to Brian Hartnell. They wanted to know the routes the killer had taken before and after his voice, his mannerisms, and the weapon. Brian managed to get a lot of details. He said he had a weird voice like he was trying to hide how he really talked. Brian said it sounded like an accent. By the size of the stab wounds on Cecilia, it was between 10 and 12 inches for the size of the knife. The shoe prints were a size 10 and a half, and yeah, that's... There were some kind of boot that the military would use, so let's add that to the list, former military or active. I wonder what the message is here, though. I can kill in daylight to look at me kind of thing. A witness comes forward about September 27, 1969. Three women had described a couple of odd encounters with a young man who was looking at them along Lake Berryessa. These women were students at the same school Brian and Cecilia went to, Pacific Union College. They saw him at a restaurant. This person seemed to follow them in a two-door Chevy sedan, either silver or light blue. These killers were in the sun, or excuse me, killers, no. These girls were in the sun tanning. They saw this man looking at them again. They said he is a white male who was looking, who was good looking. He was somewhere between 28 to 40 years old, maybe six foot feet tall, wearing 200 to 225 with black hair. They helped with the sketch as well. The police tried to see if Brian could identify the gun, but he couldn't. They had him look at bullets. He doesn't remember exactly, but he saw a 45 automatic bullet with brass casings. He thinks he remembers because of the clip. In the fall, they had Cecilia's funeral. Brian went back to school weeks later. He became a lawyer in Southern California and didn't talk much about the Zodiac. In an interview on Channel 7, KGO, he seemed sluggish and slow, maybe even stupid, but he isn't. Why does he use different methods, though? He used a Luger, a 22 caliber long rifle, and this one was a knife, which is odd. There has been no letters from the Zodiac. Oh, and how come the women get it worse? Not saying the men should, but it just seems odd. 29-year-old grad student Paul Stein worked nights at a, as a cab driver while going to San Francisco State University. He was going to get his doctorate in English. He was married as well. 
he would go to classes, sell insurance, and then work nights and weekends as a cab driver. Very long and hard. On October 11th, 1969, Paul Stein started his cab duties around 8.40-ish. It is documented on his records. He drives through San Francisco and takes a customer out to San Francisco International Airport. He goes back to downtown San Francisco. Around 9.45, Paul got a call to get a customer at 509th Avenue. He was hailed by someone on the corner of Mason and Geary Streets before he went. It's a man, and he entered the back seat of the cab. He told Paul to drive him to the intersection of Washington and Maple Streets near Presidio Heights. They stop a block further on Washington and Cherry Streets. It was 10 now, and the man in the back seat used a 9mm semi-automatic pistol to shoot Paul Stein once in the back of the head. Paul died from this gunshot wound. Three teenagers went to the windows of their apartment. They were 60 feet from the shooting and were not sure what they were seeing. They called the police. The man from the back seat stepped out and leaned into the front seat. He wiped down the interior of the cab, or what they think he did, because he had a cloth in his hand. He walked in the direction of the Presidio Heights towards the Julius Kahn playground. They said he had a noticeable walk like he was walking forward with his head down like he was lurching forward. Does that sound familiar to anybody? The police were told to look for a black male because of the confusion with the dispatcher, and the call was made by young people. There was no suspect that showed any suspicion in the area. They said it was a... They told them it was a white male, though. They told the police that what they saw about wiping down the cab. He walked down Cherry Street by Presido. An ambulance came for Paul, but he was unfortunately no longer alive. Homicide detectives are involved now. They had police dogs try and track the scent of the shooter. They found 9mm shell casings. Glasses belonging to Paul, his car keys, and wallet are missing. For some reason, Paul Stein's short-sleeved striped collared shirt, the left side, was torn off. There was also a bloody fingerprint found. It didn't match Paul, so that only leaves one other person. Was this a robbery gone wrong? On October 14, 1969, the San Francisco Chronicle got a letter from the Zodiac. The letter was postmarked from the day before. It had a small piece of a bloody shirt that was Paul Stein's. The letter says, this is the Zodiac speaking. I am the murderer of the taxi driver over by Washington Street plus Maple Street last night. To prove this, here is a blood-stained piece of his shirt. I am the same man who did it in the people in the North Bay area. The SF police could have caught me last night if they had searched the park properly instead of holding road races with their motorcycles, seeing who could make the most noise. The car drivers should have just parked their cars and sat there quietly waiting for me to come out of cover. School children make nice targets. I think I shall wipe out a school bus some morning, just shoot out the front tire, plus pick up the kitties as they come bouncing out. Yeah, this is insane. It was signed with a cross-haired symbol. Paul Stein wasn't with anyone in the middle of the city, not in a secluded place. Plus, the threat to a school bus. That's not... So he seems to be changing a little bit because he killed one person. He didn't have anyone with him. 
like a normal couple type killings. Um, he changed his gun again in, and it was in the middle of a city, not like a lover's lane place. And then threatening children, which this person has not done before. So it's a little strange. A man named Paul Avery, he wrote uh, crime columns for the San Francisco Chronicle. On October 18th, 1969, he wrote an article for the San Francisco Chronicle and went against the ego of the Zodiac. The killer of five who calls himself Zodiac is a clumsy criminal, a liar, and a possible homosexual. Not sure why he thought that exactly, um, but I'm just going to go with, like, what he thought. I don't agree, but... A liar who takes credit for crimes he didn't do. The mistake made like being seen by a witness, not killing those that could describe his voice and leaving behind a fingerprint. It is the knife that leads investigators to consider that Zodiac may be, he may be gay. His cryptic writings and hand-lettered boasts don't indicate this, but the way he wielded the knife does hint of it, which doesn't make any sense. I don't even know why this person thought that. Apparently, experts have said that such a way of doing that, it shows the Zodiac is unsure of his manhood, which I'm just like, what? How can a way somebody is wielding their knife make them unsure of themselves? They want him to get help. He has rights of care and protection. He's smart. He knows he will be arrested at some point. On October 22nd, a police department in Oakland, California got a call at two in the morning. They claimed to be the Zodiac and demanded that F. Lee Bailey, an attorney, appear on TV. If not him, then Melvin Belly. F. Lee Bailey made a name for himself. He argued in front of the U.S. Supreme Court that Sam Shepard had been denied due process and 1954 conviction for murdering his wife won a not guilty verdict in retrial. He also helped in the Boston Strangler case. F. Lee Bailey was too far. So Melvin Belly then, right? He is the king of torts. He files and wins civil claims against corporations and individuals. He also defended Jack Ruby in the murder trial of Lee Harvey Oswald. Melvin went to the office of KGO. He appeared on the KGO TV program, AM San Francisco. The host, Jim Dunbar, asked for another, for anyone other than the Zodiac to not call in. The phone rings. This man's name is Sam, um, who seemed to show that he was mentally ill and suffered from pain inducing headaches and had wanted to kill again. He threatened to kill kids. This person may be mentally ill, but there is no evidence to say yes, he is the one. This Sam called several times. He didn't say anything, though. Some thought, like, he would call sometimes and just hang up. Um, and he called again to talk to Melvin Belly alone. They were going to meet in person. This Sam did not show up. The Oakland police dispatcher who got a call from this Sam to arrange the TV broadcast said that the voice was the person he talked to. They had Brian Hartnell, Vallejo police dispatcher Nancy Slover and David Slate listened to a recording of the voice. They all agreed it was not the person they had interacted with. On November 8, 1969, the San Francisco Chronicle got another handwritten note on the back of a card in dripping pen. This is Zodiac speaking. I thought you would need a good laugh before you hear the bad news. You won't get the news for a while yet. P.S. Could you not? Could you print this new cipher on your front page? 
I get awfully lonely when I am ignored. So lonely. I could do, I could do my thing. Thing was capitalized, underlined, and had an extra exclamation point. It was signed with the crosshair. There was a tally that had this, July, August, September, October equals seven. There was a handwritten drawn cipher. This one is harder. It had 20 columns and 17 rows held 340 characters, which have not been decoded. Some have claimed to have, but never really proven. It could have just been something that didn't really matter and was made hard just to waste time. I don't know. November 9th, 1969, the San Francisco Chronicle got another letter from the Zodiac. This letter, which was dubbed the Death Machine letter, was seven pages long. He claimed and alleged things and escalated his threats against people. He started it by claiming to attack seven people. He then said that he's going to begin changing methods of his crimes so that they look like routine robberies, killings of anger, and accidents. He hasn't left behind any evidence like that fingerprint. He says he uses two coats of airplane cement to coat his fingerprints so it couldn't have been his, but there was nobody else in the cab that had that. Like It sounded like it was fresh blood too, so it doesn't make sense. He then says that all of his weapons are bought out of state. He was in the area when police checked out the neighborhood of Presidio Heights. Some officers pulled him over to talk after leaving Paul's taxi. He said, hey, doesn't it rile you up to have your nose rubbed in your (laughs) boo-boos? He wants the near miss to be published in the paper. He talks about death machine that he made. It's like a bomb. The San Francisco Chronicle published a story about the Zodiac's letter and the detail of the police stopping him. San Francisco police officer Donald Fook, who had been patrolling the area that night at Paul Stein's murder, October 11th, 1969. Donald Fook was partnered with Eric Zelms, who wasn't his normal partner. They responded to the call of shots fired on Presido Heights. Donald admits to more of the story. He and Officer Zelms responded to the call, but had been told over police dispatch to be on the lookout for a black male. They did see a white male just a block or two away from the scene of the shooting, but didn't look into him further because he did not match the suspect. I just... He remembers the male. He matches the suspect's description. He, remem- he remembers the male, and this male matches the suspect description from the teenagers. He was seen walking down Jackson Street, the same area the three teenagers saw him go. They saw him go into a stairway. Was this an honest mistake? The suspect is between 35 and 45 years old, about 5'10", weighing 180 pounds, a white male, He was medium to heavy build, wore glasses, and had light-colored hair. He walked in a hurried walk and shuffling. His back and neck were bent and his head facing down. He looked like he was lurching forward. So, does that sound familiar? This could have been the Zodiac. This probably was the Zodiac. A lot of people say he was too smart. There was no way he was almost killed by a technical or killed, captured by a technicality. And I said, it, I mean, for some reason they were told to look for somebody completely different. But this officer, this David Fook guy, 
waited a month to say something. A month. Sometimes I wonder. <laughs> Melvin Belly was getting calls from a strange man that had the same kind of voice. One call came on December 18th. He was gone that day for business. A maid answered and said he was gone. They couldn't wait to talk to Melvin. It was Paul's birthday, I guess, too. Remember Paul Avery, the guy who wrote for the San Francisco Chronicle on the Zodiac? The phone calls were traced to a man named Eric Wheel. He was a mental patient with an access to a phone. Of course, the police did, did look into Eric Wheel, but he was cleared. So then the calls to Melvin Belli's house were a hoax. The phone calls to the house... Sorry, not the house. So the phone calls to to the KGO TV station, those were not proven to be fake. Just the ones to Mel Melvin Belly's house. On December 20th, 1969, a letter arrived to Melvin Belly. It had another bloody piece of shirt from Paul Stein. The Zodiac asked for help from Melvin. Dear Melvin, this is the Zodiac speaking. I wish you a happy Christmas. The one thing I ask of you is this. Please help me. I cannot reach out for help because of this thing in me won't let me. I am finding it extremely difficult to hold in check. I am afraid I will lose control again and take my ninth and possibly tenth victim. Please help me. I am drowning at the moment. The children are safe from the bomb because it is so massive to dig in. Plus the trigger mechanism requires much work to get it adjusted just right. But if I hold back too long from the nine, I will lose complete all control of myself. Plus, set the bomb up. Please help me. I cannot remain in control for much longer. Again, this is a lot of misspellings. And, well, that piece of shirt in the letter did belong to Paul Stein. So this is where I'm going to stop because there's so much more that happens. Um... But I'm recording right after this, the next part of everything. It's it's a lot. And I couldn't really figure out where to stop, to be honest, because this is my first time doing a part part one and two of an episode. Um, but I, I did read that seven-page letter, and I didn't want to read everything because it's a lot of dribble, to be honest. It's a lot of his letters are, like, full of himself and everything. Um, but I just picked out what, what I thought was important to put. Um, so, yeah. Um, I am going to record the second right now. Thank you guys for listening. And again, I'm sorry that it's an old case and it's talked about a lot, but it needs to be solved. And I hope I'm getting it correctly. Thank you so much for listening and I will talk to you next time.